Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Today, I have a special guest, Renee Mill. Renee Mill is an expert in evidence-based treatment for stress and anxiety, parenting without anger, and the importance of emotional intelligence in the workplace. But today, she is going to be focusing on anxiety in children. And she has a strong belief in overcoming anxiety without medication. Renee Mills' life mission is to treat stress and anxiety without drugs using evidence-based treatment. This topic is controversial because anxiety medication is still widely used today. We know that. With a 5.7% increase in prescriptions for anti-anxiety medication in the United States from 2019 to 2020. We all know why, right? So I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit more, tell the audience a little bit more about you, and then you can just start talking. Thanks, Kathleen. Lovely to be here. Um, Yes, I think actually my history is quite important into why I'm such a passionate advocate for what I do, because I'm originally an occupational therapist, and when I trained in the 1970s, there was no internet and in fact, even the use of psychotropic drugs were much, they were much less used. It was only in the late 80s that Prozac became very famous and that sort of sparked a worldwide use of, of medication. And as an occupational therapist in the 1970s and 80s, we used activities, crafts, exercise, all kinds of things to get people moving and to treat people. And actually, there's been a swing back to that now. Doctors I've seen actually give prescriptions that say exercise every day. So what we were doing in the 70s actually was ahead of our time. And we treated people that way. We saw enormous success because, first of all, you're using the whole person. But secondly, you're using the whole brain. Right. And then I went on and I studied clinical psychology. And that was, I originally was trained more psychoanalytically until cognitive behavioral therapy became popular and became the gold standard of treatment because it's easy to measure and it involves behavior. So analysis involves just a lot of talking and deep insights. And I love it, don't get me wrong. 
But mm-hmm. CBT came along and said it's not enough just to understand your issue. It's important actually to change your behaviours. So mm. that's where my occupational therapy side and my psychology side came together and said we need a holistic approach and we need to understand the brain much more. What then also happened in the 1990s was the understanding that the brain is neuroplastic and the brain can change mm-hmm. no matter how old you are. It's not what we used to call hardwired. And also, there are different things that the brain can compensate for. So we used to believe that different parts of the brain were responsible for different things, like you had a motor cortex, and if you damaged that, you would not be able to, let's say, walk again. But there's more and more people can read up on it. It's fascinating. More and more people where different parts of the brain take over the motor cortex and can actually compensate. So when I talk about anxiety-free, drug-free, what we're talking about is getting the brain and changing the neural pathways. Mm -hmm. Because what anxiety is, is your brain firing. So what happens is you might have a trigger. That trigger might be, as a child, you've got a fright, you've got scared of a dog, or it could be something more dramatic. It could be trauma, it could be abandonment, or it doesn't matter what it is, but the brain starts to fire. And if you don't regulate that, there's a thing called the Hebbian principle. I won't yes. be too technical. That says neurons that fire together wire together. And what that means is that the more the brain fires, the more that neural circuit becomes locked in. So if you could imagine a child's railway track and the train going round and round, that's what a neural pathway looks like. And the more it goes round and round, the more glued together and fixed it becomes. So people who have trauma when they're young often will come to me as an adult and go, I'm not, my life is fine, why do I still feel anxiety? Hmm. But it's because you have this neural pathway. So really the best way of treating anxiety is changing neural pathways as opposed to taking medication. And my neuropsychotherapy professor used to say that medication is like putting salt in soup, whereas changing neural pathways is changing the recipe of Mm. the soup. It's changing something fundamental. Okay, so that's a theory behind it. Um, So the idea is there is so much one can do to help our children who are suffering from anxiety, whatever the reasons, is how to get the brain functioning in the best possible way so that it calms down and so that it becomes, in fact, resilient. You want both. You want to decrease the anxiety, but also to activate more coping mechanisms and more resilience. Right. I hope that wasn't too technical. No. In fact, I was going to say, oh, she's going to talk about the Hebbian principle because I talk about <laughs> that. What fires together, wires together. And so, yeah, it is so amazing that we these kiddos that have experienced trauma can form these new neural pathways and that's what has to be done because otherwise they're just repeating the triggers the trauma the anxiety and we want to get them off of that track into a new track and I don't know if you've ever researched um, Dr. Caroline Leaf and she talks about when we have those negative experiences, that the toxins that are released in our brain, and they actually grow these neural pathways that kind of look like a tree. 
And the more that we fixate on those negative things that have happened in our life, the stronger that tree becomes. And the more we change what we're thinking about or how we react to that trigger or adding new coping mechanisms, and we begin to grow a new tree in our brain. And I know, I know it's not actually a tree, but I'm just using that as the word picture. So it is so powerful, and I think it's so amazing that this is what your stance is, because I 100% agree. I know you've listened to the podcast. I am 100% like, what can you do to help this child cope? And the most listened to podcast episode that I have is how to reduce anxiety in your children because it's so much more prevalent now like your statistics for 2020 and how the it's rising even now that people are giving their kiddos medication for anxiety and I you know I want to say I know I'm not shaming anyone or anything but in whatever way you can if you can add movement if you can add dance, if you can add art, if you can add any other sort of thing that's going to help your child feel less anxious instead of prescribing a pill, I think it's so important to do that. Because those issues are still there if you don't, if you don't treat them. They're still there. They're just buried under a pill. Does that make sense? That's right. Um, the thing is that I want to talk a little bit about parents because one of the issues is, and this is a big part of, in fact, what my first book is about, is actually debunking myths that parents carry. What we believe about the world will affect the way we parent. Mm-hmm. We live in a world, I call it a crisis intervention mode, where people are curing illness and everything is seen in a pathological way. Mm-hmm. And people have become very scared of something like anxiety. And like everything else, anxiety is on a spectrum. And we, we all suffer anxiety at times. It might be for a, a minute, it might be for a day, it might be for weeks on end. Um, and we all suffer mild anxiety or we can suffer extreme anxiety. And so what happens is because we live in a culture where there is this want for our children to be perfect and for life to be smooth and we're scared of the, of the fact that things, something might really be wrong, mm-hmm. then we start to panic if we see some anxiety and we want to fix it. Mm. And it's yeah. really important as parents that we can, be, we can manage ourselves and actually create a space to understand a bit more what is going on and sometimes to allow what's quite natural to happen and teach our children how to work through it rather than going, okay, they're anxious or they're depressed, let's quickly get a pill and fix it. Hmm. We need to have a more holistic parenting style of seeing our kids as developing and in an environment that we are providing and really taking time to think about what's actually happening and what needs to be done rather than trying to fix it straight away. We don't, we're not good anymore at sitting with discomfort or sitting with things that aren't going exactly the way we want them to, and finding longer-term solutions. So parents need to 
if they worry, if parents suffer from anxiety or they get scared if they see their child being anxious, that's the first step to actually manage that a bit better so that okay. one can then help one's children. Right. Then the second thing is once you have a sort of a longer-term view is to actually see if there are any triggers you can remove. So mm -hmm. one of the other things that's become a problem is that people um, are treating symptoms out of a context. Now, again, mm -hmm. none of this is new. You know, again, in the 1970s, individual psychotherapy was very popular. But in the, in the late 1970s, along came family therapy that said, well, you can't just treat a child. We need to know what are the systems in the family. Mm -hmm. A child can come for an hour therapy, but what are they going home to? So if you're in a chronically stressful situation, again, it's not enough just to treat the symptom. We need to understand what those stresses are and see if we can, if not eliminate them, at least shift them or change them. And sometimes we have to be, as parents, very brave to do that. But sometimes we have to be very honest mm -hmm. about what those stresses are and what we are bringing to the party, what our family or our home is bringing to the situation. And you want to fix the dynamics in the family or the stressors that are impacting the family as well as the individual symptoms. Right. And I think another thing that parents have to do is go against the grain. As difficult as it is, what is best for your family may not be what everybody else in the culture is doing. For example, we had to pull back from sports for a while, for a season, when my kids were all dysregulated and had recently come home, in air quotes, and we were at the soccer field every night and we realized this is not helping them. They need to cocoon at home with us for a season. So I think sometimes you have to go against the grain and it is really difficult in our society because people ask you, well, why aren't your kids doing this? Or why aren't you on this committee? Or why aren't you doing this? When you, right. when you have to take that time and evaluate what is best for my family right now in this moment and in this season. And one thing that I always tell parents is, you know, 10 years from now, is this going to matter? So in right. asking that question, then you figure out what does matter 10 years from now? And is it more security, felt safety for your kiddo, feeling like, oh, I grew up in a home where people cared about what was going on in my life and in my heart and in my mind and in my body? Or did I grow up in a family where you had to do what everybody else was doing? Right. Which brings me to my next point, which is looking at each individual child. So mm -hmm. when I work with parents, we do a very basic sort of personality analysis, if you like, and you can use anyone, but there are, for example, different personalities, and there is the sensitive child as opposed to the relaxed child or the dominant child. Mm -hmm. And so the sensitive child might be more vulnerable to stressors, but they also might not really be anxious. They might just be sensitive. And so one needs to take into account each child, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. So again, before one rushes in and says there's medication or let's fix it in, in, in a prescribed way, one actually needs to say, who is this child 
and what does this child need and then how does this child respond to these stressors. So it's different for everybody and mm -hmm. understanding each child makes a huge difference and also understanding the interplay. So I know that you talk a lot about, um, you know, different diagnoses or what you call capital letter um, syndromes. Mm -hmm. We know that those have a higher percentage of anxiety linked to it and so one needs to look at them both together um, and see what is the best approach because more than one thing is happening at once. So it's not just symptoms. Let's treat the symptom. It's looking in a much bigger way what needs to be done. And then you can decide on what things are, which movement, if movement is good, as you say, you withdrew from sport for a while, what actually needs to be done to change the brain, to mm -hmm. help it become calmer, to fire less, but then also to build more mastery and resilience. Right, and that's the thing. You're so right because each child is individual. I was just thinking about had my um, six of my grandkids here a couple weeks ago for the weekend while my daughter went to a conference, and it was like every single child has a different reaction to whatever's going on. So then you have to look at, you know, what is this one? And my husband told me just this afternoon, like you were really good at reading what each child needed. You can't lump them all together. They're not like cattle. They're not, you know, you don't just put them out to pasture. They each have different needs. And then you really have to dig deep and and not, I'm not saying like sit there and question them, but watch what's going on. Which one is more sensitive? Because that was me. I was the more sensitive child, but I was also the one that was quiet. And then I had a couple of those myself. So I would be watching them going, they're absorbing all of what's going on, but they're not saying anything about it. But it was right. making them feel anxious, especially because they had siblings who had trauma and were having triggers and reacting, and they were absorbing all that. So they were getting that secondary trauma. And I couldn't just ignore that, which, you know, sometimes we're very tempted to because we want to say yes. nothing, nothing bad happened to you. You're fine. You know, <laughs> why yes. are you feeling anxious? So I think and sometimes with a sensitive child, you know, they react more strongly, but it doesn't mean they're anxious. And right. this is why, again, one has to be very careful before you, you know, some people say I've got an anxious child or a highly strung child. But often those kids are just more sensitive, but they're actually okay. They don't see themselves as needing treatment. Mm -hmm. They will come back from an event and just be highly strung or very excited, and all they need is a bit of help to self-regulate if that's what they need. But they will always react that way. And some people take in more um, environmental cues than other people do. But is that necessarily pathology? Does it need to be treated? No, it doesn't. So I take a lot of time really thinking about even if we call a treatment. Sometimes I try not to call a treatment because it's about loving the whole person and going, okay, you have a sensitive personality. You are going to react quite strongly. And what, what is your quality of life like? Mm -hmm. And does one need to change it? Or does the people around you need to actually go, this is okay, this person can be neurodiverse or can be more sensitive than we are, and that's okay. It's not a pathology. Right, and as long as those children 
have some coping mechanisms in place, like maybe they're sensitive to sound and light when you go somewhere and you go to an event like a birthday party, and then you come home and they are wound up. If if you help them along to know, hey, you need some quiet time. You need to read a book or listen to a book on Audible. You need to, you know, de-stress. And then they can carry that same coping mechanism through the rest of their life. So when they come home from work, when they're older, then they know, hey, listen, I need a little bit of time to de-stress before I do something with the family. As long as they have those in place, but you're so right because as parents, we're so quick to say, oh my goodness, we need to fix this. How, yes. how can we fix this? So if we have listeners who are like, okay, so I have a child who is extremely anxious all the time. What is the first thing that you think that they should do? Like, so again, I look at it slightly. Um, it's, it's about having a lifestyle that has built in every single day things that are good, that mm. keep you calm. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. people spend too much time rushing around, I'm mm-hmm. not judging anyone, I'm part of it myself, <laughs> rushing here, rushing there. So when you're rushing and you're telling your kids to hurry up, let's rush, let's get there, even as I'm saying it, I can feel my heart rate go up a little bit. When you're talking like that, you actually set off your own sort of anxiety level. So unless it's really a rush, Give up words like busy, rush, we've got to get there. Mm-hmm. Plan your day that it can, you can actually have a calm, productive, full day. I say to parents, instead of saying I'm busy and had a hectic day and I had so much to do, actually I had a fulfilling and productive day. Mm. So we need to plan our days that we get up early enough. So this is the kind of thing that often, I'm not saying this is the cause of the anxiety, but it's coming to my answer of what to do. Parents will wake up at 7, the kids have got to be ready for the car to leave for school at 20 to 8, and they're rushing to get everybody there. Mm. So I encourage parents to get up earlier, get up at 6.30, have your shower, have breakfast ready, be calm. When your parent, when your children wake up, there's a calm environment. They can eat in time. Get to, so you have an environment that is working, that is planned, that is consistent. That in itself goes a long way to helping your child be calm. Yeah. So, and also to teach your child to plan better and to make time for things. You then want to build in practices like <clears throat> breathing every day. Start the day, five breaths, just everybody, even if you're having a calm day, it's good to build into one's lifestyle. Starting the day, relaxing. Just breathe in five times, breathe in for five, breathe out for six, breathe in for six, breathe out for seven. I like that method, takes five seconds. Everybody learns that part of life is in the morning you do that, just like part of life is exercising regularly. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing, you make it part of lifestyle that everybody exercises. It's not about you go and exercise now. It's part of this family's lifestyle that we eat well, we exercise, we have regular bedtime. So the structure and having that consistency goes a long way to keeping children's brains calmer. On uh, top of that then, if the child then still needs to emotionally regulate, what you suggested is a common one, have a quiet space where you can calm down. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you one of the methods that I find very effective with young children 
is to actually, when they are worked up, to talk to them about it. What are you actually feeling? Mm. It's a part of mindfulness. Where in your body do you feel it? Mm-hmm. To validate it, to allow the child to feel it. It can be very hard if you're a parent who doesn't get anxious to understand it, not to judge it as a weakness, but to go, okay, what are you feeling? Where are you feeling? Allowing the child to feel it. And then you go, okay, now that is your anxious brain talking. What can your calm brain or your big brain tell you to do now? So you want to teach your child to realize there's the anxious part, but there's also the calm or resilient part of the brain. And very often they'll come up with themselves. I'll cover my eyes, I'll splash water on my face, I'll go and lie down, I'll call a friend. So the idea is to... This is a four-step process that I teach even to adults to be aware something is upsetting or triggering us, you know, even if we don't know what it is, but what's going on for us, stop, what can I do about it? And different people will choose different things at different times. So those things are very easy for children. Another one is pushing hard against a wall, Mm -hmm. pushing one's feet into the ground. They're very simple things. Um, Some is taking off your shoes and just walking around barefoot. But it's actually more the understanding. This is what's really powerful. The technique is important, but it's the understanding that I have a choice and my brain can switch if I want to. So it's an awareness of what I feel, stop and pause, and what is my other side of my brain telling me to do? And that ability to stop and change is very empowering. Yeah, and that's... the more we do it, the easier and more automatic it becomes. But even as an adult, that's what it is, having the choice point and finding what works for us. And then as children get older, we can move from the breathing to actually making time for meditation at home, listening to relaxation, um, things on Spotify as an example, before they go to sleep. So it becomes part of every day, having things one can do to help you stay calm. But there's a focus during the day to actually go, I want to have a calm day and what are the things I can build in? Yeah, those are very good. Those are awesome. And I, you know, I teach the pushing up against the wall, you know, the grounding yourself. Those are so important for kids. I mean, it makes them feel, for lack of a better word, empowered, like they are not at the mercy of what they're feeling. They acknowledge what they're feeling, which I think is extremely important. And I think that traditional parenting overlooked that. Like, I don't care how you feel. You just need to behave, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) And and it just doesn't work because what you get probably in your office is a bunch of adults who were traditionally parented who don't even know what they're feeling. It's true. Yes, and so they're scared of it as well. People are scared that if they open, they say if I open the tap, you know, what's going to come out? So they're very scared of of expressing or admitting to those feelings. Right. The other big one that that is really, really important is giving your children what you're talking about, empowerment, Mm. but also through a sense of mastery. Mm. So it's... When we talk about the different parts of the brain, there's the anxious brain and then we can call it the calm brain, you're actually saying to your child, you have it within you to find solutions. Hmm. But another way of having mastery is 
you know, we have a lot of what we call helicopter parenting or lawnmower parenting is we want our kids to stay safe and we go, don't do that and be careful of that. And actually, there is a lot of research that anxiety increased in children after helicopter parenting became more prevalent in, the, in around 1995. Mm-hmm. Other things now have compounded that, and that is obviously a lot of, uh, I've heard it on some of your podcasts, some of your guests, you know, watching um, social media and, and, and too much screen time mm-hmm. has also been shown. So those are the stressors I was talking about in the beginning. But mastery is, you know, allowing your child to do more things on their own you know, give them chores around the house that will make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Let them walk the corner on their own if they can and if it's safe. Um, let them approach the shopkeeper if there's such a thing anymore and ask, you know, for help. Got to keep up with the times. Here, yeah, a lot of things is self-service. But that idea that, you know, you encourage them to step out of their comfort zone in anxiety language, you call it exposure. You know, if someone is scared of a dog, you expose them to the dog. All the talking in the world of how scared you are doesn't shift. Behavioral psychology shows that a braided exposure to the dog is what changes. So anxious children become fearful. We then become protective. And so actually very slowly encouraging them to face their fears, doing what they don't want to do, showing them that they actually have a lot of skills that's better than any medication because there's a sense of I can do it. Not that I'll never feel anxious, mm-hmm. but then I can overcome my anxiety or I can face my fears or I can live a full life. Right. And the thing is, I was interviewing another podcast guest in our little pre-chat. She was telling me that she was anxious to be on the podcast. Like it was like really kind of freaking her out. She'd never been on one before. Sorry, I'm exposing you, person that was on the podcast. But I was like, well, I feel that little bit of anxiety every time I record a podcast. And she said, what? And I said, yeah, it's natural. You just feel that like, oh, am I going to say the right things? Am I being helpful? Is what I'm saying really going to reach someone? I said, I have all those little anxious thoughts before I start recording. And even after I push the button to end the podcast and send it to the editor, I'm like, oh my goodness, was that, you know, everybody has those and it's natural and it's normal. And I actually told her, I said, you know what? I think that that fear is telling you you're moving in the right direction. Because if you didn't care at all, you wouldn't have a fear about it. You would just be like, oh, well, I don't really care if people get anything out of this podcast. <laughs> That's true. And this is where, where language is very important. You see, I wouldn't call that anxiety. I would call that stress. And okay. Call, it's good stress, use stress. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't perform well. We need a bit of that stress to make sure that we're on time. For me, it was making sure I got here on time this morning. Mm-hmm. Because for people who don't know, I'm in Sydney, Australia, and our times are very different. So, you know, really getting up extra early and getting there on time. But I wouldn't call it anxiety. It was you stress. Okay. Making sure I got you on time, making sure everything was in place. You may, you may Your stress is you want it to be a good podcast. You want it to go well. So we need a certain level of that kind of stress to do well, which is what you're saying. Otherwise, you can be too relaxed and not achieve. So this is where I get back to using language one really needs to watch what language we use because we can use catastrophic language or exaggerated language and unknowingly we make ourselves that a little bit more anxious. 
Oh, that's good. That's good to hear. So as we wrap it up today, what is like if you listeners, if you have this one anxious child, she's going to give you her final piece of advice. Like what's one thing you could tell them to start today just after listening to this podcast, one positive step they could take? Well, I would look at the, sorry, the terminology of that one anxious child. I would try and reframe that and say, this child, this whole person may be having some anxious symptoms that are coming to visit. Who is this child? Mm. And what is my role in calming the environment and helping this child calm their brain? And what can I do to empower them to learn to regulate themselves? But when you say anxious child, it's a very pervasive label. So that's what I'm encouraging everybody to do. Look at anxiety symptoms. Um, Do they need treatment or not? But actually hold on to the fact that everyone has anxious symptoms that visit and really look in a more holistic way of what one needs to do as the parent in the environment and what the child can do to calm that brain so that they can function better and be more resilient. Well, thank you. That is great advice. And thanks for being on the podcast today, Renee. Thanks for inviting me, Kathleen. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on traumainformedparenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.